Well, it's good to see all of you here this morning. Uh, this is sort of a transitional Sunday. We are transitioning to a new series for the rest of the summer called Love Thy Neighbor. And we're going to be exploring different ways that we can accomplish that. It's also, as you well know now, a graduation Sunday here at uh, Sherwood Oaks. And this is a transitional Sunday for all of our graduating seniors, whether it's high school or even college. Their lives are about to make a great shift, a major shift as they prepare for a college life or career challenges or military service. <clears throat> so to, to the graduates who are here, let me just simply say, wherever you go, whatever you do, I hope those around you will readily recognize you as a good neighbor because you are a reflection of Jesus Christ. You know, when asked the question about what the greatest commandment is, Jesus answered like this, as Matthew recorded in chapter 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. When you follow Jesus and you live out these two commands, you will be a success in the eyes of God wherever you go. And being a success in his eyes is really all that matters. And this is a transitional Sunday in the sense that it begins... It signals the beginning of summer. Now, I know, I know, summer doesn't officially hit us until Thursday, June 21st. But in our minds, it has begun. School's out, summer's in, right? That's the way we think. Plus the heat. My goodness, it feels like summer already. So as we begin interacting with our neighbors across the fence or in our backyards or at the ball field or around the park, we need to be asking the question, how can I love my neighbor as myself? How can I be a reflection to those around me of Jesus Christ? And not surprisingly, the New Testament offers us illustrations of good neighbors, people who lived out the great commandment and left us with a model to follow. And so over the summer, we're going to take a look at these individuals in Scripture. Now, we're not going to be able to touch them all, but we're going to take some that really are good. Some of them you may not be as familiar with as others, but hopefully it will teach us how to live out this marvelous command and be a good neighbor. This morning we're going to begin with the theme, Be Present, and we're going to take a look at Nicodemus, a really a somewhat peculiar example for our theme. Someone wisely said, wherever you find yourself, be there. Now, that sort of sounds like double talk the first time you hear it, but it is wise advice. Stop and think about it. How many times have you been physically present, but your mind was a million miles away, like many of you in here this morning? <laughs> or have you ever been talking to somebody, and um, they don't look you in the eye, they, they seem distracted, uh, they're not paying attention to what you say, and you feel like you're talking to a brick wall? Um, such moments, and we're all guilty of them, by the way, are annoying. So what do we call that? Is that divided loyalty? Is that double-mindedness? Is that schizophrenic neighborliness? I don't know what you call it for sure, but whatever name you choose, it's not good. James, in chapter 1 of his letter, speaks of a double-minded man as unstable in all he does. In other words, don't be Double-minded. 
Wherever you find yourself, be present. Be there. When we first meet Nicodemus in Scripture, he appears to be double-minded. He is living out this very issue that we're talking about. He's wrestling with loyalty. Does he remain loyal to being a part of the Pharisees, or does he become a loyal follower of Jesus Christ? You see, Nicodemus is trying to decide where to be present with his life. I believe he's an honest man. I think he's simply striving to be where God wants him to be, but he doesn't know where that is. So who is this Nicodemus anyway? Well, if it were not for the gospel of John, we wouldn't have met Nicodemus. John introduces us to him in chapter 3. And according to John's gospel, Nicodemus comes to meet Jesus for the very first time in a private meeting at night. And though the Bible doesn't say, most suspect that this was because of his fear. He was afraid of his peers. He, he was a part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of, of the Jews. And so he was afraid that the others on that council would disown him if they knew he was talking to Jesus, who at that time was being viewed as a renegade by the leadership. Have you ever read this conversation that Jesus and Nicodemus have in chapter 3 in light of the crucifixion and the resurrection. I mean, did Jesus know at the moment he met Nicodemus, did, did Jesus know that this guy was one of two that would help take him down from the cross after his death? As Jesus looked ahead, I think he was trying to instill courage in this frightened would-be disciple. Jesus would need to take him on a journey in this conversation, to help him take a spiritual stand for the future, to do the neighborly thing when he died, because Jesus was going to need a good neighbor to help him even in that moment of death. So the Lord begins telling Nicodemus that he cannot enter Christ's kingdom without a new birth. You must be born again, a new beginning. Don't be afraid, Nicodemus. I'm going to give you a new hope when my kingdom comes. And then Jesus references his crucifixion, not in so many words, but with a story. And, and I, you, you got to know that Nicodemus didn't understand what Jesus was saying, but I think someday all of the pieces would come back and fit into place. And Jesus begins to tell the story with a Hebrew event that had taken place in Numbers chapter 21. God's people during this 40 years of wandering in the wilderness after their release from Egypt were, well constant gripers and complainers. Probably don't know anybody like that today, but they were. And God on this occasion had had his fill once again. And so this time to punish them for their constant complaining against him and against Moses and everything else that was going on, God sent poisonous snakes into the camp of the Israelites to wake them up. Now I'm here to tell you, I would have repented on the spot. <laughs> now the people pretty much did that as well. They realized that when the snakes came in, that their complaining had gotten a hold of God in the wrong way, and they wanted to repent. They recognized their sin, and they pleaded with Moses, intercede for us, Moses, and God gives Moses the strangest cure you've ever heard for snake bite. God said, Moses, this is what you do. You make a brass or bronze snake and put it on a pole and hold it up and then tell people to look at it. 
Now, this doesn't make any sense at all. The problem is snakes. So why do I want to look at another snake if the problem is poisonous snakes? By the way, if you've got poisonous snakes on the ground, where's the last place you want to look? Up. You know, you're, you're trying to guard yourself. You're trying to protect yourself. The last thing you want to do is take your eyes off the problem and look at something unrelated, as it seems. This was a test of faith. God was saying to the people, do you trust me more than you trust your eyes? It may not make sense to you, but I want to know, do you trust me? I've got your back. And sure enough, Moses fashioned the snake, put it on a stick, and those that looked at it were healed. And then Jesus makes this comparison. In this conversation with Nicodemus, he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So the comparison is Jesus will one day be lifted up on the cross. He's talking about his crucifixion and our faith in his sacrifice. Take courage, Nicodemus, Jesus says. I've got you covered. I've got your back on this one. And if that wasn't enough, then Jesus launches into perhaps the most famous passage of Scripture in all of the Bible. John 3, 16 and 17. Do you realize that these verses were given to a, a would-be double-minded, divided loyalty kind of disciple? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. The most famous verses in the Bible for Nicodemus. What single verse better summarizes the whole purpose of his coming? Now, Nicodemus doesn't have, he can't put all these pieces together at this time, but I think Jesus is saying this, take courage, Nicodemus. I'm calling you to courageous loyalty. You're here at night, Nicodemus, but you don't need to be afraid. The Father has a plan that'll knock your sandals off. Just be loyal to me. And don't you know that when he was taking down the dead body of Jesus from the cross, that all these words came flooding back. We're still finding courage in the Father's plan today. In John 8, 32, Jesus said, Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We cling to the same promise that if we put our faith in him, life will make more sense than it does without him. Holly Ordway thought Christianity was a blemish on our modern civilization. An ardent and educated atheist, she admittedly knew nothing or very little about Christianity, but she thought the Bible was a book of myths and folktales. However, as her life progressed, she, uh, she came to realize that her worldview was inadequate to explain a lot of things. How we got here, the purpose of life, the whole concept of morality. And through a series of conversations with a, are you ready for this, a good neighbor, uh, a reliable, respected mentor. Holly came to believe that in Christ, there really were good answers. And looking back over her journey to the truth, Holly made this observation. She said, really, it doesn't matter whether we like Christianity or not. What matters is, is it true? Holly discovered that the truth really does set us free. We may not always like the truth. It may not always be comfortable truth. It may not always be popular truth. But the truth does set us free. And it sets us free to be good neighbors, loyal to Jesus Christ. So 
What are we going to learn from Nicodemus this morning that we can take home with us? Well, very quickly, let me, let me just point out a couple things, sort of through the back door of Nicodemus's experience. And this is the first one. Don't let peer pressure keep you from loyalty to the Lord. Now, our kids that are graduating today, they can tell you all about peer pressure in school. But I'm here to remind you that peer pressure doesn't end with graduation. Peer pressure happens all through life. You have peer pressure at work. Uh, you have peer pressure in the military. You have peer pressure wherever you go. You got it in your social settings. You've got it in your neighborhoods. You may even have it in your family. And sometimes we let peer pressure keep us from doing what we know is the right thing to do. Only in the Lord's death did Nicodemus identify as a disciple. You see, loyalty is it's kind of hard to come by. It's because loyalty needs a proper focus. And the key word there is proper. You've undoubtedly heard the phrase, he's loyal to a fault. Have you not? Well, that's when loyalty may do more harm than good. When I was six, year old, six years old, I had a tonsillectomy. And uh, the surgeon at that time, which was pretty much the case, used ether to put me out. He put that mask on you, they drip the ether. Oh my goodness, I thought as a six-year-old I was suffocating. I was, I was really frightened by the whole experience. Now here's what I remember all these years later. I would not go to a surgeon today who was loyal to using ether as an anesthetic. Okay? We've got all kinds of far better anesthetics available to us today. I don't want you to be loyal to using ether. I'm not coming to your, 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 your services as a physician if you're going to use ether on me. You see, that to me is being loyal to a fault. Blind loyalty is not any better. I mean, there's nothing about just simply being loyal that's a virtue. Blind loyalty is not beneficial. On uh, December 25th, 1944, Lieutenant Hiru Onoda was left on an island in the Philippines to serve his country in the closing months of World War II. Somehow he missed the Japanese surrender and continued surviving in the jungle, are you ready for this, for the next three decades. Leaflets were dropped all over the island begging him to surrender and return home to Japan. He did not believe them. He refused. Finally, he made contact and said the only way he would surrender and come down out of the jungles is if his former commanding officer told him to. And so they found his former commanding officer, sent him to the island. He read the terms of the surrender. And finally, Hiru Onoda came out of the jungle, presented his rusty sword, and surrendered. And the president of the Philippines pardoned him. He went into the jungle at 22. He came out of the jungle at 52, aged more than a normal 52-year-old would be. And you can look at that and say, boy, that's impressive loyalty. No, not really. It was blind loyalty at best. It was a waste of 29 years of a man's life. He made this observation. He said, nothing pleasant happened in the 29 years in the jungle. You see, blind loyalty is not good either. Loyalty by itself is not a virtue. It's who we're loyal to that matters. And if we aren't careful, the church can be guilty of both blind loyalty and being loyal to a fault. 
The church must guard against being loyal to a methodology instead of a message of the truth that will set us free. When I first started into ministry many years ago, uh, I preached about four or five revival meetings every year. Uh, revivals were still pretty popular back in that day and time. Some of you are old enough to remember what a revival is. Some of you are young enough don't have a clue. A revival was a, a whole, whole week divide, uh, devoted to church. You'd bring in a guest preacher, and they would preach starting on a Sunday, and they'd preach through the whole week. And every night, families would come and, uh, and listen. Now, uh, we don't do revivals anymore because they aren't effective. Now, they weren't really even effective when I was starting out. They were an encouragement to the church and to Christians, yes. But where they were really effective was like two generations before that, my grandparents and great-grandparents' generation. That's when they, re they were the evangelistic tool of the frontier. They would do these one-week and two-week revivals, and people would come to know Christ by the dozens, sometimes by the hundreds. It was a fabulous evangelistic methodology. By the time I came along, we were doing it still because that's the way we'd been doing it for several generations, and it was a great encouragement to the church. Today, with everything going on in people's lives, it's hard to imagine that you could carve out five nights in a row to come to church and listen to somebody else preach. And the thought of getting a non-believer to come, why? That would be near impossible. You see, being loyal to a methodology is not the same as being loyal to the message. Methods change. The message doesn't. Genuine loyalty matters. Loyalty to an employer, loyalty to our marriage vows, loyalty to our kids and grandkids are all admirable qualities. But the greatest loyalty is to Jesus Christ. We honor real-life heroes for the lives they save at the cost of their own. Richard Rescorla, director of the security at Morgan Stanley in the Twin Towers in New York City, was a stickler for safety procedures. On that awful 9-11 morning, when the first tower was struck, Richard put his evacuation plan into action immediately and saved 2,500 lives before he lost his own life while still directing people to safety. We call that a hero. And our culture understands heroism. What our culture does not understand is martyrdom. Why somebody would become a martyr. You see, sometimes a hero dies not by choice, but by placing themselves in harm's way, and that's the end result. But a martyr chooses to die rather than deny their faith. A martyr comes from the Greek word witness, and it means one who chooses to suffer death or endures severe or constant suffering as a witness to their faith in Jesus Christ. I admire more than I can put into words those of our family in the church who today lay down their lives for their faith. We've already heard about Simi and, and, and what's happening in India and the, and the constant buildup of persecution for those who are followers of Jesus Christ. But India is not the only place. Do, do you know around the world it is estimated that more people die for their faith now, every year, than died during the time of Nero? This year, this year it is estimated more than 100,000 Christians will die simply because they're followers of Jesus Christ. I admire their loyal faith, and I pray 
that that won't happen to us here. I'm grateful that we live in a country that allows us to worship as we please. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. When you live in a country where there is the possibility of giving your life, you choose loyalty. There are no wishy-washy people that sit in the pews. When you live in a country where Christianity can be practiced and God can be worshipped, it is easy to be a wishy-washy, non-committal kind of Christian. So the question that we really need to ask this morning is, if there are those who are giving their life for Christ, what am I doing to live for Christ? Just showing up here, you see, really isn't enough. Here's some important questions I think we need to answer. How do I demonstrate my loyalty to Jesus Christ in our environment? If someone could analyze your heart and mind, what would they learn about your loyalty to the Lord? Do you have any regular Bible study habits? What's your prayer life like? When making a decision, do you ever stop to consider how God would want you to make that decision? Do you stop and pray about the decision before you make it? Would the Lord consider you loyal? Graduates, you'll be headed off to some new adventures in your life, and there will be all kinds of things tugging at you for your time, energy, and loyalty. Take your faith with you every day. Don't shelve it while you're in college or you're on the job or you're away from home serving in the military. It is one of the things that is so important to you. It is the most important thing. It is the one thing that will get you through life. So stay loyal to Jesus Christ at all costs. Here's another question. How do I demonstrate my loyalty to the Lord's family, the church? It is a challenge today with so much going on in our culture to find time to be active in the life of the church. I get that. I've watched families get torn in hundreds of different directions. I think, how do you do it today? No matter what choices you make, you're sacrificing something else. But if you're raising your family or you're raising grandkids, just remember that actions speak louder than words. For the sake of your children and grandchildren whose lives are still moldable, whose faith is not deeply rooted, make sure that they grow up knowing and seeing that loyalty to the Lord's family is a priority in your home. Graduates, let me encourage you to find a church wherever you go. Make, make that a priority. Churches aren't perfect. You know that. But the church is the best place for you to find encouragement, for you to find help, and for you to build a life for the future. The church is the best place for you to be a good neighbor and to find a good neighbor. Now, here's the tougher of the questions, I think. What do I do outside these walls that makes me a good neighbor? You see, when you come inside these walls, when you gather in this place with other people who believe the same thing that we believe, for the most part, it's easy to be a good neighbor. It's easy to be loyal to Jesus Christ. But once I walk out these walls, what am I doing that makes me a good neighbor? How are you being present out there? Several of our folks here in the congregation are serving as court-appointed special advocates. That's CASA. You read about CASAs uh, that, that step in and help advocate for a child. I, I learned at the end of this week that Monroe County here has 100 children in need of CASAs, and there are not enough to meet the need. 
So much so that, that there is a new program being established called Child Visit Monitors. It's, it, it still takes much of the training of what it means to be a CASA. There's not quite the responsibility there, but it's a stopgap measure because there's nobody. There's nobody to advocate for these 100 children. And I thought when I learned that, wouldn't it be wonderful if our congregation stepped up and said, we'll solve that problem. We'll find 100 people or more in this congregation who will be willing to take the training, who will step up, who will be an advocate for a child in need. I mean, what an opportunity to be a good neighbor, to be a reflection of Jesus Christ, to make a difference in this community because there are so many needs that are not being met. Now, I know, I know there's a lot more to it than that. I, it's just, I'm dreaming out loud with you folks. But I'm thinking in a congregation of our size, we could do this. We could turn the tide. I, I don't know if you're interested or not, but if you are, stop by the welcome desk out there, will you, and give, and, and give us your name. And, and, and if you say, i got to pray about this, I understand that. I, I think that's a good idea. Then call us this week. Give me your names, all right? I don't know where this is going to lead, but I can tell you this. If we get enough names, we'll get a meeting together, and we'll get somebody from the community who can come in and help us understand what it's going to take. Wouldn't it be great if we said, we're going to be the neighbor that takes care of the casa need? Don't wait to demonstrate your loyalty to the Lord. Be present. Make a difference now. And real quickly, don't let fear and indecision keep you from doing what is right. Nicodemus procrastinated. He let his fear, his indecisiveness, keep him from making the right decision until, folks, he had wasted all three years of the earthly ministry of Jesus. It wasn't until Jesus was dead that he finally identified with him as a disciple. Boy, I'm telling you, fear is a powerful emotion. Have you ever used the expression, whoa, boy, I was scared to death in that moment? Well, there may be more truth to that than you realize. During the 1994 Los Angeles earthquake, over 100 Californians literally died of fright, according to Dr. Robert Cloner, a cardiologist at Good Samaritan Hospital who did a lot of research, and his research revealed that excessive fear can cause sudden cardiac death. In many cases, the frightened brain triggers the release of a mix of chemicals in the body so potent that it causes the heart to constrict and never relax again. You can die of fright. Anthropologists who have studied about witch doctors, when, when they place a curse on people in certain tribes, it works. Not because they have supernatural power, but because of the brain and the fear of the person who believes once they've been cursed, they're going to die. And so they stop eating, they stop drinking, and guess what? They die. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, I don't know where you are in the fear scale. Right now in this room, most of you appear to me to be fairly relaxed. At this moment, none of you appear to be scared to death. Some of you look like you're resting in peace, but you're not at least <laughs> scared to death. But once you walk out these doors, I know what's going to happen. The anxieties and the pressures and the fears and the concerns and the stuff that you left at the door when you walked in for a few minutes is going to fall right back on your shoulders and you're going to start to stew and worry about all that stuff again. The impact can be unnerving, even debilitating, if you let your fears control you. Have you thought about the source of all of your fears? When we're young, we fear the dark, monsters under our beds, and the sounds that go bump in the night. We fear moving to a new school or the new kid that moves to the desk right next to ours. 
As we mature, our fears get larger too. We fear changing jobs, changing houses, changing communities, changing churches, and changing directions in life. We fear battles with our spouses, meltdowns with our kids, conflicts with our friends, confrontations with our bosses, and going into combat against our enemies. And we're afraid of the medical alphabet. You know what I mean? The medical alphabet. MRI tunnels. CAT scans. X-ray films, upper and lower GI tests. We fear inoperable cancer, debilitating dementia, massive heart attacks, and paralyzing strokes. We fear funeral homes, caskets, vaults, and cemeteries. We really are a people who, if we will allow fear to dominate it, can be easily dominated by the fear and do nothing with our lives. Nicodemus lived with that for three years, and then Jesus turned the corner with him. I think it was his death and all the pieces coming back together. And finally, that divided loyalty became a single loyalty of following Jesus. The future can appear fearful, but I know that such fear is the tool of our spiritual enemy and he uses it to paralyze us. I don't know what happened to Nicodemus. The Bible doesn't say, but I got to ask the question. If he didn't become a great leader in the ancient church, then why would his story take such a prominent role in Scripture? I think John wrote about him because Nicodemus finally put his fears behind him and his indecisiveness behind him and said, I'm 100% loyal and courageous for Jesus Christ. You see, it takes that to be a good neighbor and to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you know him this morning? He calls us to courageous loyalty. Wherever you are, be there for him. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org/messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.